on. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10 is where we will be this morning. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to welcome you. While I'm turning there as well, I want to welcome everybody. Welcome the guests in the room. If you're a guest and you've been checking us out, we're so glad that you're here. Um, and I would encourage you, um, if you are a member here or a regular attender, or if you plan on continuing to check us out to bring a Bible with you, uh, we will not guilt or shame you if you don't have one. Um, but my primary role is to get your nose in this book. Um, my hope is that you would see the things that we're going to talk about today um, in this, the text and see them for yourself. Uh, we have a very simple method around here, and that's talk about the scriptures one verse at a time. Uh, we're going to go verse by verse through this parable of the Good Samaritan, and uh, I would love for you to see these things for yourself, see these claims that I make and test them with scripture. And uh, um, the word promises um, that the Lord um, transforms us from one degree of glory to another as we behold him in his word. Um, so let's continue to look at him and behold him. Um, Luke chapter 10 is where we are, and I don't want to waste too much time. So let's read this text, and it'll be on the screen if you uh, don't have it on a device or in your Bible. And um, if you'll stand, let's read this, and we'll dive right into the text. Uh, I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 25 through uh, 37. Um, this is the word of the Lord. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. God, I thank you for your word. As we listen to the rain fall, God, I thank you that even the rain is evidence of your grace. You promised us way back in Leviticus that you will bring the rain in its season and you will bring the crops um, to yield, to fruit. But God, you also promised in Hosea 6 um, that the Lord, um, you're going out as sure as the dawn and you will come to us as sure as the rain showers. Um, so God, as we hear the sound of the rain, we can rest in your promises, God, that you have gone out and you will return. You will come to us just like the rain falls. Um, so God, I'm grateful that you allow the rain to fall on the just and the unjust this morning. Um, God, that your grace spreads far and wide to the world. And uh, God, help us to see your grace. And Father, as we look at this parable, I thank you um, that you have chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And you've chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Um, so God, help us to see um, the foolishness of humbling ourselves and laying down our lives, admitting our sin. Um, God, the, the path to salvation is not self-exaltation. 
It's actually humility and brokenness and admitting that we need you. Um, so God, help us to see that in this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Um, we've been walking through the parables, and we have picked a good one for you this morning. We're going to be in Luke 10 looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, this is probably um, one of the more famous stories um, just in all of the world, all of the Christian world, all of the secular world. This is right up there with uh, you know, the golden rule, the prodigal son. Um, Christian and non-Christian alike are very familiar with this parable. In fact, um, the term Samaritan is actually a good term in our world today. Um, it was a curse word in Jesus' day, as we're going to see in this parable. And because of this story, actually, when you hear the word Samaritan, um, it's now a praiseworthy term. Uh, there's organizations like the Good uh, Samaritan's Purse and Samaritan's Feet and Samaritan's Everything, right? There's just all these organizations um, that are based off of um, the definition that is revealed to us in this parable. Um, that the Samaritan is someone who is lowly and sacrificial and generous and all of those things. So now you've got organizations that um, have kind of branded themselves off of this very parable, whether they know it or not. But before we dive into the parable, I want to give you the context um, because we've talked about this in most of the parables, so we won't belabor it. But um, although this falls in Luke chapter 10, um, this is actually nearing the end, probably the last couple months of Jesus's earthly ministry. Uh, we mentioned this last week, but most of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focus on Jesus. They really hone in on like the last week of Jesus' life. Um, so although we're only in chapter 10 of Luke, and there's lots more chapters, um, most of the book, the bulk of the book is dedicated to kind of Passion Week, the Holy Week, where Jesus is arrested and betrayed, and um, the Upper Room Discourse in John, and places like that, where um, it's really focused on Jesus' last week. So you get through Jesus' earthly ministry pretty quickly in most of the Gospels. So we're in Luke 10. But um, Jesus has only a couple months left in his earthly ministry, and by and large, in a lot of his ministry, Jesus spent preaching to the Jews. He showed up, he was pulling from the Old Testament law, showing the watching world, showing the Jews that he was the fulfillment of that law, that the Old Testament was actually pointing to him as the Messiah, and he performed mighty works in front of them, he taught them from the law, and by and large, Jesus was rejected by the Jews. Why? Because he wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for this strong, attractive hero of a man, this warrior who would come and overthrow Rome. If you remember, Israel was under Roman oppression. Rome was the world leader at the time, and they were expecting somebody just like Alexander the Great in Greece or Julius Caesar in Rome who would show up and be their kind of political figure and would overthrow Rome and usher Israel into their eternity of rule and reign on the earth. That's what they were looking for. They were not expecting a meek and humble, sacrificial, compassionate, unattractive man who would come and welcome tax collectors and sinners into the kingdom. It was far from what they were expecting. So this man shows up, starts preaching about the kingdom, starts showing that he's the son of God through signs and wonders, but also through his teaching. And Israel's like, nope, not the guy. No thanks. And they reject the kingdom. Why? Because they rejected the king himself and his word and his teaching. And Jesus actually mentions some of this, but here's, here's a big reason why they miss it, was because um, Jesus shows up and he was preaching a message of repentance. It wasn't, you're great, you're awesome, it was repent, sinners, right? Turn from your sin and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those that missed it were the elites. They were the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the self-righteous that didn't think they needed a savior. 
And they missed it because he was showing up and welcoming broken people and tax collectors and sinners and calling people to repentance. And the very people that missed it were those that had the Old Testament law or those that were self-righteous. They thought they could obey it. And Jesus talked about this often. He said, I didn't come for the healthy. I didn't come for those that think they're righteous. I came for those who are sick. I came for those who know they are sinners. And the very people who grew up memorizing the Old Testament law end up missing the Savior. Why? Because they could not repent. Because they missed the original diagnosis. Hey, you're a sinner. You need a Savior. Because they would not accept the diagnosis, they also would not accept the cure. And for you and I, before we can accept the cure, which is Christ himself, who would be our righteousness, who would heal us and restore us and bring us to new life, we have to first accept the diagnosis that you and I are sinners, that we are rebels from God, that we are selfish, that our hearts are prone to wander all the time. Scripture says that the heart is um, abundantly deceitful and wicked and leads us astray all of the time. And that you and I, before we can accept the cure, we have to first accept the diagnosis. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the elitist of the day would not accept it. And because they would not accept and they missed the diagnosis, they also missed the cure. And Jesus is talking a couple of verses before this parable. If you want to look up, it won't be on the screen, but if you want to look up in Luke 10, verse 21, um, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus is praising the Father that in his wisdom, he's used what's foolish according to the world to shame the wise, that the self-righteous missed it. Why? Because all they had to do was to admit that they're not, that they're not righteous. If you're in here this morning and you're feeling that tension of, man, there's so many people, they look like they've got it all together, they look like their lives are together, that's not what we're doing. In fact, we're doing the opposite. We're here to gather to remind ourselves that we don't have it together and that we need the gospel and that we need the love from one another and the love that God bestows us in Christ. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they missed it. And then a couple of verses down in verse 23, he says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear. The, the, the elites, the scribes, the Pharisees, the self-righteous, they missed it. And in this very story, Jesus is going to give us a lawyer, a priest, and a Levite. Knew all the facts, knew the Old Testament law, and they missed it. They are not the... Um, model of righteousness in this story. In fact, they are condemned in this story. Why? Because they did not see Christ in the text. They did not see Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Who is the symbol of righteousness in this story? The outcast, the broken, the one who knew he needed a savior. That's who's modeled as the righteousness, the righteous one in this story. So let's look at Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Uh, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a lot wrong with this sentence, so we're going to take it a little bit of a time. But the lawyer um, is not a secular lawyer that we think of in the 21st century. Um, this was actually a religious lawyer. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin was like the fancy name for this elite council. Um, they actually had a role in the Sanhedrin that was the lawyer. And the lawyer was the expert in the Old Testament scriptures. He would actually counsel the scribes and the Pharisees on matters of the law and was actually the final authority on matters of the law. So Roman Empire, Rome had authority. Um, they had, you know, the buck stops with Rome. They had all authority, but they, within the Roman Empire, they gave the scribes and the Pharisees a little bit of authority to govern the Jews according to the Old Testament law. 
Now, the Jews could only go so far. They couldn't do some major things, like they couldn't kill someone. Um, there's a reason why in the text that the Jews have to go and get a Roman governor to approve to kill Jesus, because they didn't have that much authority. But they did have authority over the, uh, the Jews when it comes to the Old Testament law and things like that. So you've got this lawyer, and he's an expert, and we're about to see this showdown, right? This theological debate between this expert in the law, this expert in the word of God, and the word of God himself going head to head. This elite, probably wealthy expert and this humble carpenter from Galilee going at it together. Let's look at what happens. But it says the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So we don't have to guess the lawyer's motive. Luke gives it to us. Here's his motive. It's to put Jesus to the test. His goal is to expose Jesus. And in his pursuit of exposing Jesus, Jesus and his rabbi ways is going to expose the lawyer, as we'll see in this text. But in his effort to try to expose Jesus as a fraud, Jesus is going to expose his inability um, to save himself, which is great. But you see his motive. Um, so he's trying to embarrass Jesus. Who do you think, or who does this lawyer think is the true expert in the law? He thinks it's himself, right? And he sees this opportunity. Here's this carpenter. Here's this, you know, celebrity guy coming along. Crowds are following him. And I'm going to sharpen my um, Old Testament interpretation skills on this dull carpenter from Galilee and make a, a show out of him and expose him and embarrass him. And this is the, the lawyer's goal. It's to put him to the test. And what's ironic about this is that the lawyer thinks he has a high view of God's law, right? I'm an expert in God's law. I've got it all figured out. Surely this carpenter doesn't, right? He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Surely he doesn't think very highly of God's law, right? If he'd hang out with the least of these, if he would hang out with those people. Surely he doesn't follow God's law. And if I go up to him and ask him, hey, what do you think of the law? Surely Jesus would say something like, oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it, right? Anybody can come. That's what the lawyer was thinking. But the, the, the irony of this whole passage is it was actually the lawyer that had a low view of the law and Jesus that had a high view of the law. And what I mean by that is the lawyer had a low view of the law because he actually thought he was keeping it. So the law wasn't very steep for him to be able to think that he could keep it, right? He thought, approaching Jesus, that he was meeting the standard of the Old Testament law with his actions and his behavior. So it was actually a very low view, and Jesus is going to show him a very high view of the law, a high view of God's standard, which is actually the standard of perfection. Jesus is going to point him to the perfect standard of righteousness in the Old Testament, and this guy was deceived, thinking that um, he could keep it. So you see this head-to-head, -head, and then he says, teacher, right? You see this false humility from this lawyer calling Jesus a teacher, um, kind of condescending um, because he clearly thinks he's the expert. And then he asks him this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, High Point Church, what is inherently wrong with that question? I, right? What shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The answer to that question is nothing, right? You can't. It's impossible. You and I, in our own works, we cannot do anything to inherit eternal life. We can't. It is a flawed question. The very nature of the New Testament and the Old Testament is that someone has to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Old Testament and New Testament preaches that man cannot save himself. I mean, it's silly, but it, it, we literally see it in the order of the books of the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, 
God gives his people the law, right? Here's the 10 commandments, here's the law, here's the standard. What's the very next book? The book of Leviticus, where here's all the sacrifices you have to make for when you don't keep the law, right? Like you see it in the order of the books. Here's the standard, now here's all the blood that needs to be shed for all the times that you don't meet the standard. It's given to us in the order of the books and it's preached to us all throughout the books that you and I, man cannot save himself, that you and I need someone to come and be our righteousness in our place, someone to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We need a righteousness that is apart from us trying to obey the law because in our ability to obey the law, we cannot do it. Man needs a substitute in his place and that's the gospel, is that someone came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. There's a righteousness apart from obeying the law. And it's because Jesus Christ himself came down to earth and he obeyed the law perfectly in our place. And then he went to the cross for all the ways that you and I disobeyed the law. That's the goodness of the gospel. And what's also ironic about this question is he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is weird because you don't do anything to inherit something. By definition, to inherit something, it's not based on what you've done, it's based on who you are. And that's also the gospel is that you and I don't have to do anything to inherit eternal life. You can't do anything to inherit it. Just like an inheritance, all you have to do is receive it by faith and it's freely given to you because by faith, you're united to Christ, you're adopted into the family of God and all of his inheritance is freely given to you. That's the goodness of the gospel. And this guy's asking, what do I need to do to inherit this thing? And Jesus, in his kindness, points him back to the law. Verse 26, he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the Greek word there is actually, how do you recite it? Because he knew that this lawyer and most Jews would have had the Pentateuch, at least the the first five books of the Bible, the majority of those verses memorized from the time that they were 12, from the time that they were children. They would have this thing memorized. So Jesus says, well, what's the standard, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what is the standard that the law gives? What does it say? And here's why I want you to see this. Jesus doesn't point him back to the law to confuse the man. He doesn't point him back to the law to condescend the man. Jesus actually sends the man back to the law, not because the law could save him, but because the law was intended to show you and I that we can't save ourselves. Jesus is actually pointing him back to the law to interpret the law rightly. Hey, let's go look at the law because I wanna use the law as it was intended to show you and me the perfect standard of God and show us that we can never attain it. That's what the law was meant to do. It was to show you and me that we could never save ourselves in our own good works. You and I cannot be good enough, we cannot behave well enough to ever earn salvation or God's approval or God's love. We just can't. Left to our own devices, we will not. So Jesus points him back to the law, not to show him, hey, here's what you need to do to be saved, but to show him that he could never be saved by his own works and that he needs saving. What I mean by that is um, I wanna show you a couple verses in Romans because this is littered in the New Testament, that this was the role of the law, that the law was never meant to save. The law was actually given to us to show us our need for a savior. But by our obedience to the Old Testament law, we could never be saved because we can never obey it. This is Romans 3. This will be on the screen, but if you wanna make a note in your Bible, this is Romans 3, um, starting in verse 20. And it's very clear. Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now the word justified there uh, means to be made righteous, to be made right, to be made good. By works of the law, you and I could never be right. We could never be righteous. 
We can't. The Greek word for just and righteousness are the same word. And Jesus is saying, hey, by works of the law, you can never be righteous. You can never be good enough. And then he says this, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And Jesus is giving us the Old Testament in a couple of verses. That the Old Testament law was given to show us our sin, to show us that we can't meet the standard of perfection. And now there's a righteousness that's been given apart from the law. But the law, the Old Testament, bears witness to this. The Old Testament shows us we can't save ourselves, but that there was someone coming who would do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It was bearing witness to this righteousness apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the righteousness. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. We can talk about that in another sermon. But it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That was the role of the law to show us our need for a savior and to, to point to the fact that Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God that is freely given to us by faith. It's an inheritance that you receive, not that you do anything to earn. You receive it by faith and you and I can be made righteous in the sight of God, apart from the law, apart from our obedience to the law. Romans 5, the same thing. Now the law came to increase the trespass. This is why the law was given, to increase our sin, to show us our sin. Now, Paul, and this is, let me just say this, commercial break. This is Paul's like main argument through the first 11 chapters of Romans. So if you wanna follow this argument, read through Romans on your own. But this is what Paul is getting at is um, there was sin that existed before the law was given, but now when the law is given, when God's perfect standard is given, and you and I put our lives up to the standard, our, our sin just increases, right? The more we think about God's perfect standard, the more we realize just how sinful we are. And when we now have a standard to hold our lives up to, we go, wow, right? I thought I was sinful before, but now when I hold my life up to this standard of perfection, there's no way. And that's what Paul's saying. The law was given to increase the trespass, to show us just how sinful we really are. But where sin increased, here's the gospel, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in short, to give you an illustration, the law was meant to be an x-ray. That's all it was meant to be. God's law, the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, were meant to be an x-ray for us, to show us that we're broken. But they weren't meant to save us. The law can't save us. Our obedience to the law cannot do it. When I broke my arm in the fourth grade for being dumb with my brother, um, I went to the doctor and he took an x-ray and put that thing up on the, you know, the little light board and showed me, hey, that, you see your elbow right there? There's not supposed to be a line going through there that's this fracture. But you know what he didn't say? Let me take about eight more x-rays and then you'll be healed and good to go, right? The x-ray can't save it was meant to show me that something was broken, but I need a physician to come in and do for me what I can't do for myself. And that's the role of the Old Testament. That's the role of the law, is to show us that, hey, in our sin, in our flesh, we are fundamentally broken, right? 
Genesis 2, we're made in the image of God and we have dignity and worth and value, but because of Genesis 3, you and I, we are fundamentally flawed because of our sin. And when the standard of the law comes and shows us just how broken we are, it was never meant to save us. It was meant to be a good x-ray and to show us just how broken we are and bring us to the feet of the great physician to save us and to rescue us and to redeem us and to restore us. That was the goal of the law, to bring us to the feet of the Savior, of the Messiah. And you've got the scribes and the Pharisees and these elitists who totally missed it. And there's a warning there for us because you'll notice that Jesus picks these three people in the story who who had all the facts. They knew all the answers. And I wanna caution us too because the more we read the scriptures, the more we learn on Sunday mornings and those things, knowledge of the scriptures can produce one of two things. It can produce arrogance or it can produce affection for Christ. And we've gotta be really careful as a church that as we learn these things, as we study the scriptures more, that it doesn't just puff us up and produce more arrogance, but that the more we see Christ in the scriptures, that it produces more affection for him in our hearts and that it shows us more of our need of the gospel. It shows us more of our sins, so we keep running to the feet of Jesus. So Jesus says in this text, what's written in the law, how do you read it? And rightfully so, in verse 27, this expert in the law gives him the standard, like perfectly. The man answers, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. Now, that's impressive, right? He quotes the great commandment. Jesus in the gospels would affirm that, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, this is impressive. This guy knows his stuff, right? Imagine if someone came to you and you had to defend your faith and you could only use the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. How would you do, right? I'd be in hot water. I'd be in trouble, Like, there's no way. But this guy was clearly an expert, and he gives the standard. Jesus says, hey, he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And Jesus says, well, what's the standard that's given in the law? And the lawyer gives him the standard. And let's not blow by the standard. Here's the standard. To love God with all, 100% of your heart, of your soul, of your mind, and of your strength, perfectly, 24-7, all the time right? To be perfect, to love God perfectly all the time and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself all the time. The standard is to be like God. The standard is perfection, right? It's, it's huge. It's this massive standard. Love God perfectly all the time, never mess up, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is a massive standard. Let me just tell you, church, I have never, ever, for a second, loved God with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my mind and with all of my strength, not even for a second. My heart is deceitful, it's wicked, it's wandering all the time, I'm selfish, all the things, I gossip, you name it. There's not a moment in my life where I've loved God with 100% of my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength, ever. Like, we cannot meet this standard. And Lord knows I don't love you guys as much as I love me most of the time. Right? I just don't. Like, let's take the standard, let's take the mirror, and let's turn it towards ourselves for a minute. And look at the standard. If our salvation was dependent on this, 
where would we be? Like, there's no way. Yeah, hell, exactly right. Look at verse 28. Jesus says to him, hey, you've answered correctly. Go do that and you'll live, right? If that's the standard, if our salvation is dependent on our ability to obey this standard perfectly all the time, then nobody lives. Everybody dies and heaven is a lonely place apart from the gospel. But the good news of the gospel is our righteousness is not based on our ability to meet the standard. It's based on Jesus' ability to meet the standard. And he came down from heaven and he obeyed this standard perfectly. He loved the Father with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, perfectly, all the time. And he loved his neighbor as he loves himself. That's the goodness of the gospel. But left to our own flesh and our own devices, this lawyer, given the standard, Jesus says, yeah, just go do that, right? Go live perfectly and you'll have eternal life. You'll inherit it. You'll earn it. Go do this and you will live. Go live up to that standard. Now, without looking at the next verse in the scriptures, what should the lawyer, what should he have said? How should he have responded, right? Hey, Jesus, what's, how do I get eternal life? What's the standard? Jesus says, what does the law say? He says, love God perfectly, love your neighbor just as perfectly all the time. What should the lawyer have said in, in response? Jesus says, all right, go do that. He should have done what the law was intended for him to do, which was to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, then how do I get saved? Because there's no way I can do that. Absolutely. There's no way I can be good enough to meet that standard. There's absolutely no way anybody can do that. Who's gonna be saved then? Surely somebody's gotta come and do this for us because there's no way, according to this standard, that I could ever be with God forever. No way. But that's not what he says, is it? Look at the next verse, 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This guy still doesn't get it. He still thinks in his self-righteousness that he is obeying this standard perfectly. He still thinks he's able to do it. And I circle, underline that phrase, desiring to justify himself. Shows that he still doesn't miss it. The expert in the law missed the entire point of the law. And the entire point of the law is that you and I cannot justify ourselves. We can't. We have to be made righteous. We have to be justified by someone else, something apart from the law. And this lawyer missed the entire point, and here he is, still trying to earn his salvation, still trying to justify himself. The expert in the law missed the entire point of the law. Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says it so plainly. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In case we missed it, Paul says it three different times in three different ways in that one verse, right? From the, the Department of Redundancy Department to let us know in case we, our hard hearts, we, we so, our, our bent is to wake up and try to justify ourselves, try to be good enough for God to love us, try to read our Bible so that God might not be mad at us this morning, that's anti-gospel. That's working for God to love you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus has completed the work so that God loves us if we're united with him by faith. By the works of the law, no one can be justified. 
And this guy, instead of being justified by throwing himself at the feet of Jesus and begging for mercy, he's still trying to justify himself by his works. And he answers, or he starts asking the question, who is my neighbor, right? And we all do this. When we are in a moral predicament, when we are falling short of God's standard, what's our first resort? We often start trying to redefine terms, don't we? Surely the standard isn't that steep, is it? Surely the Bible doesn't say that. Like, does it really want me to do that? Like, that's not gonna be fun. That's gonna hurt. Surely Jesus meant something else by what he says, right? That's harsh. Surely that phrase means something else. And this guy's still trying to show that he thinks he can meet the standard. He's going, okay, well, give me some clarification on who my neighbor is, because I still think I might be doing this right. I still think I'm able to fulfill this standard. And when you and I, where we are in trouble morally, we often try to redefine what the Bible says. When we get caught, when we're exposed, when we're in sin, one of our first responses is often just to try to redefine what what the standard is and what the text says. Surely it doesn't mean I have to do that. Surely it doesn't mean I have to walk away. Surely it doesn't mean I have to die to myself. Surely it doesn't mean I have to give up things. That would be hard, right? But the standard remains. And then to answer this question, who is my neighbor, Jesus breaks out into the parable. Now, let me just say this. If you're ever in a theological debate with Jesus and he breaks out into a once upon a time, you are in trouble, all right? Because instead of just telling you what you're doing wrong, he's going to show you the exact point of your heart that is sinful, right? He's going to take you to the very point that you're missing the mark and he's going to show you in the form of a story. Same thing that happens with the rich young ruler. Ironically, that whole conversation with Jesus and the rich young ruler starts with this same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And where does Jesus go? He knows that this man in his heart doesn't treasure Jesus for who he really is, but he actually treasures his possessions. And Jesus says, hey, go get rid of your stuff and follow me. And the man went away sad. And now you've got this lawyer thinking he's going to expose Jesus, is in the process of getting exposed himself by Jesus, thinking that he's meeting God's standard to love him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love his neighbor. And he goes, hey, just give me some clarification on who my neighbor is. Because I think I've got this. And then Jesus breaks out into a once upon a time. And he says this, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, most likely this man that Jesus was describing would be a Jewish man and he is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Luke means that literally. A lot of people don't know this. I've actually gotten to ride a bus down this road. Um, But the path from Jerusalem to Jericho was down. Um, Jerusalem was about 2,000 feet above sea level, and Jericho is like the lowest place on earth. It's like 1,000 feet below sea level. So this is a steep path with rocks, and Israel's not very green at all. It's very you know, brown, tan, gray, dusty, lots of rocks and caves for places, people to hide and, you know, robbers and thieves. And so to the fact that this road was actually had a name, that this path from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles and it was referred to as the path of blood. It was actually the part of town you would not want to find yourself in. So this man's going down the path of blood, walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, steep elevation, going down to Jericho and As we would expect, where the robbers and the thieves hang out, they show up and they strip him and they beat him and they depart and they leave him half dead. Now, I'm not a doctor, 
And I don't know medically what half dead is, but I know what it looks like, right? I do. I think you know what it looks like too. It's this, just this heap of flesh and you don't know if it's alive or not. It's not moving. You're a little afraid to walk up to it because it might move suddenly and then you know, you've wet yourself and all the things. Like it's, you're, you're, you're nervous to approach it, but it's just this heap of flesh that's sitting there. And you're like, I don't know if it's dead. I don't know if it's alive. And that's what happened to this man. Jesus says he's going down the path. He gets stripped and beaten by robbers and they left him half dead. Now, verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And this is where a lot of hope enters the story, right? If I'm left beaten and robbed and naked, half dead, the one person I want coming by is someone that has some sort of moral or civic obligation or duty to help me, right? I want a police officer. I want someone in ministry. I want somebody to come by and to help me out. And who does Jesus pick? He picks the priest, right? Who, according to the Old Testament, had tons of moral obligation to come alongside and to help this man. And what happens? The priest walks by on the other side. And what's so bad about this scenario is the priest actually had immunity as he's going down the path of blood. It was bad you know, juju back in the day to beat up a priest. So he could travel from Jerusalem to Jericho. He wouldn't be touched. People just kind of knew you don't mess with the priest. Um, but the priest actually had th- anywhere from three to five days, according to the Levitical law, uh, three to five days of ceremonial washings before he would go from Jerusalem where the temple was and where they would um, perform their ceremonial washings to Jericho. So this was three to five days of washings. And if he shows up and touches this man, then he's suddenly unclean. You know, there were foods that were unclean. There were diseases that were unclean. All sorts of different things were declared unclean according to the the Levitical law. So the priest knew that, hey, if I help this man, then I'm unclean and I've got to go back to Jerusalem. I've got to go three to five more days of washings. I've actually got to add another one because I was unclean. And then I got to proceed on my day. And I'm not trying to defend the man. He's in the story because he um, did not help and he is guilty So I'm not trying to defend him, but I am trying to get us to understand what's going on with the priest. So he chooses not to help. And let me say this, um, woe to us, woe to churches um, that fall into this category. Um, It is so much easier to keep up a religious system than it is to get messy in the lives of people and to help people in need. It is so much easier to play the church game and play the religion game and show up and raise our hands and go home and give a few dollars and serve a few hours and not actually be in the lives of people and get in the mess and help people. And this priest kept up the religion and missed the very thing that the religion was designed to do, which was to help broken people in need, to help them be restored, to see God, to love God, to know God. And woe to us if we ever become a church that just plays the game, does the song and the dance and the motions, and we stop being present for people in need and walking with people in the mess, willing to be unclean for the sake of others. But this priest misses it. And then next verse, so likewise the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now this is even better. A Levite was essentially a priest in training. If you remember in the Old Testament when God um, established the nation of Israel into 12 tribes, one tribe was not given any land and it was the tribe of Levi. 
Why? Because they were going to be the priests and they were going to be scattered throughout all the other 11 tribes and they would be the priests for the people, for the nation of Israel. So you've got the Levites who are scattered around Israel and because this guy is referred to as a Levite and not a priest yet, it means he was either a servant of a priest or he was essentially like a priest in training. Like he had all of the moral obligation and religious duty of a priest, but he didn't have you know, all of the washings and all of those things yet. He was in a better position to help the man in need. He was a priest in training. He knew the, the verses. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the obligation to help those in need. Better suited to help the man, and he didn't. And once again, his religion got in the way of him actually practicing righteousness towards someone in need. And before we condemn the Levite, once again, let's turn the mirror around. And how many times do you and I come up with moral, religious reasons to not help people in need, right? I don't have the time. I don't have the response. You know, I don't, I don't have the resources. That's going to require a lot. Lord, please send someone to help this man. And the Lord's like, yeah, you're there. Like I sent you, right? It was Charles Spurgeon that said, I never knew a man to refuse to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse, right? We are very good at redefining the terms, at redefining what the scripture says, at coming up with admirable excuses. And I'm not trying to say this to guilt you or to shame you, but I'm trying to expose all of us that we don't meet this standard either. We often fail to meet this standard. How many times have I withheld the ability to, to meet someone in need? How many times have I seen someone in the grocery store that I know that's struggling and said, I'm gonna take the other aisle, right? I gotta get my groceries and go home. And this is just me being honest, right? I am way more guilty of this than I want to admit to you this morning. There is way more lawyer, way more priest, and way more Pharisee, way more Levite in us than we ever want to admit. There is. We don't meet this standard. And then Jesus says in verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now this would have been a curse word in this story. And the, the Jewish lawyer would have said, no, 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 like, no, there's no way you're about to make the Samaritan the hero of this story. Like, not a chance. Don't even try it. Don't even do it. There's no way you're about to, to make the Samaritan the good one in this story. It's a curse word. He would have stopped him in his tracks. Why? Because the relationships between the Jews and the Samaritans were so heated in that day. And if you want to know kind of how the Samaritans came about, all throughout the Old Testament, it's just the story over and over again of God's people turning from him and God saying, hey, if you don't repent and turn back to me, I'm going to pronounce judgment on you. And then you just see the cycle over and over again in the Old Testament. And often how God would pronounce judgment on Israel was he would allow a neighboring nation to come in and beat them up, right? Plunder their goods, take them over, attack them, rule over them. All of those, it happens over and over and over again, all over the Old Testament. And towards the end of the Old Testament, um, the nation of Israel had split because of sin, because of disobedience, because they weren't um, heeding the word of the Lord and listening to God. And now God raises up all of these prophets. All the prophetical writings in the Old Testament are written to Israel. Um, you see a lot of this in First and Second Kings. Those books are confusing because they just jump back and forth between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and you don't really know which one they're talking about most of the time and all those kind of things. But God raises up all of these prophets to call the nation of Israel to repent, and he says, otherwise, if you don't repent, God's going to judge you. And in 722 BC, right around 2 Kings chapter 15, I believe, or 2 Kings 12, I forget uh, the reference exactly, God allows Assyria 
to invade the northern kingdom of Israel and take them captive. And the Assyrians, the arch enemies of Israel, come in, take the northern tribe. They intermarry with them. Israel starts to worship their pagan gods, and that's the birth of the Samaritans. The Samaritans were so hated because they were literally Jews bred with their enemies to spite them and to shame them and to cause them to worship pagan gods. Jews hated the Samaritans. I'll give you a couple examples in Scripture. Um, in one chapter before this, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are going to walk through Samaria and they're stopped. And they say, no, 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 you're Jews. You, you gotta walk around. Like, you can't even walk through our town. In John chapter four, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And Jesus gets about two sentences in when he says, hey, pour me a drink. And she starts answering and she goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Like, we don't do this, we don't talk. Like, what are you doing? You're gonna get me in trouble. Like, what's going on here? And I mean, it's in the first century. She doesn't even say, you know, I'm a man, you're a woman, which that would have been weird for them to talk. You didn't do that in the first century. She skips right over that and she says, no, 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 you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we don't do this, we don't communicate like this. And what's beautiful about that story is she was the first person, the Samaritan woman, the outcast of the outcast that Jesus revealed himself to be the Messiah to. He offers her living water and he says, I'm the one, I'm he, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been looking for. And then lastly, one more example. In John chapter eight, the Pharisees and the scribes get so mad at Jesus that they call him a demon-possessed Samaritan, right? It wasn't just that they called him a demon-possessed man. Uh, that would have been bad enough. They're thinking, okay, how do we make this even worse, right? Demon-possessed, oh, let's call him a demon-possessed Samaritan, right? Like that's as bad as it can get for a Jew. And that's what they call Jesus. This was how bad the rivalry was between the Samaritans and the Jews. And Jesus introduces this character. He says, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had the one thing that the priest and the Levite and the lawyer actually did not have. And what does he say? Compassion. He had compassion. Woe to us if we get so caught up in our religious game that we lose compassion for one another and compassion for people in need. They had all of the facts, they had all the writings, they had all the Old Testament law, and the one thing he lacked was compassion for someone in need. And Jesus is taking this lawyer who thinks he's meeting the standard and he says, you don't have compassion for your enemy. You don't have compassion for the Samaritan. You don't have compassion for the people in need around you. You are so self-righteous and think that you can save yourself, that you've totally missed it, that you're broken, that you need a savior and God might use you to help those in need. And he totally missed it. The word compassion there in the Greek is actually like um, to be moved in the bowels. Like it's, it's like he was moved internally. He was broken to help this man. And then how much so? Verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So this guy binds up the man's wounds. Now, first century Jew was not carrying first aid kits on their donkey. So what'd he do? He's losing his clothes. He's taking off his robe and tearing it or cutting it, taking off his clothing and binding up the wounds on the person. And not just that, he's pouring on oil and wine. So necessities, essentials for food in the first century, very expensive. This Samaritan for his enemy, for this Jewish man, is pouring oil, pouring wine, pouring these expensive things on the cuts of this man to heal them. 
And then he set him on his own animal, right? So it's not just that he approached this man and touched this man who was his enemy, but then he sheds his clothes, he gives up his expenses and his nourishment and oil and wine to eat and all those things, but then he exposes himself. He makes himself vulnerable by putting this man on his own mule. Hey, you're gonna ride and I'm gonna walk this 17-mile journey. I'm gonna make myself vulnerable and leave myself exposed to be beaten and to be you know, stripped and robbed on the path of blood. And not just that, he brought him to an end. Right? Most of the time we help somebody, we make a phone call like, hey, you gotta find somewhere for this guy to stay. No, he took the man, put him on his own donkey, took him to an end, sacrificed his time. And then verse 35, I think this phrase is just incredible. It starts with, and the next day, right? Don't blow by that. I've helped people before. I've done some nice things for some people before. I don't know if there's ever a time where I've given someone next day kind of help, right? Like, don't miss that detail. And the next day, like the man wakes up, he's still there, right? Hey, I'm still helping you out, all those kind of things. The next day, he's still helping this guy. He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And most commentators say that two denarii was two months stay at the end. So, hey, I'm gonna pay for this man to stay here two months, right? He was half dead. It's gonna take a while for him to recover. Saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he essentially takes this man to the end, pays for two months and then says, spend whatever else you gotta spend. Whatever expense is required, spend it and I'll pay it when I get back. So I'm coming back and I'll square up with you. He essentially writes this man a blank check. Many of you ever given your credit card to an innkeeper for months and just say, hey, spend whatever you need to spend and I'll shore up with you when I get back? Not a chance, right? And here's this Samaritan saying, spend whatever you have to spend, do whatever you have to do to restore this man and I will come back and check on him and pay the debt. And then verse 36, the parable's over. Jesus looks at him, the lawyer, and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now notice this. And I think this is important. It's a slight distinction in the text. But notice Jesus doesn't say, which one of these is your neighbor? He doesn't put it from the point of view of the lawyer. He says, which one was a neighbor to the, the dead man? Right? And I think there's a reason for that. You might be like, what's the big deal about that? The reason I think that's a big deal is because when you and I are the ones who have the resources to help people, when it's our turn to, to do something nice for somebody else, we often have a very narrow view of who our neighbor is, just like the lawyer, don't we? When it's my turn to help somebody, when it's my money or my time, boy, does the, the view of who our neighbor is shrink drastically, right? Ah, uh, you know, he can help himself, or ah, uh, you know, maybe the Lord will send somebody to help them out, Right? just not me, and we come up with lots of reasons why, these admirable excuses why we can't help. But when it's our turn, when we're in their position to help someone, when we've got the resources and we've got the money, boy, do we like to shrink the definition of who our neighbor is. But Jesus doesn't look at the lawyer and say, hey, which one of these people in the story is your neighbor? What does he say? Who was the neighbor to the, the one who was left for dead, right? And here's why. When you and I are left for dead on the side of the road, how big does the definition of our neighbor get, right? When it's me who needs someone to come alongside me and do for me what I could not do for myself or help me or love me or take care of me, how much bigger does the definition of our neighbor get, 
right? When I'm left for dead on the side of the road, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you look like me. I don't care if you act like me. I don't care if you talk like me. I don't care if you're in a gang. Like, I don't care who you are. Everybody's my neighbor when I'm left for dead on the side of the road, right? Who's around that can help me? Anybody with a pulse, right, is my neighbor. And that's what Jesus is trying to get the lawyer to see, that our neighbor is not just who we choose for it to be in the moment. That Jesus is saying, hey, here's your neighbor. Here's who you're called to love according to God's standard is anybody that you can, anybody in need at any time. That's who your neighbor is. This is the standard. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor, love anybody who is in need, anybody who you have the ability to help and to bless and to encourage and to love at any point and any time. That's what Jesus is trying to get the lawyer to see. And he just doesn't see it. And what's so sad about this response is verse 37. Jesus asked him, okay, who was a neighbor to the man left for dead? And the man still can't find it within himself to even say the word Samaritan. Look at what he says. He doesn't say the Samaritan man. He won't make him the hero of the story. He won't even say that word. Can't find it within himself to have that much compassion for a Samaritan the very thing that Jesus was exposing, right? You have so much hatred, and I would venture to say racism for this man. that You can't even say his name, and you think you're meeting the standard to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself? And the man says, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, that's the standard. You go and do likewise. Go and try to meet the standard. And by all means, we never see this man come back. I don't want to add to Scripture or assume anything, but you could be safe to assume that this man goes away trying to justify himself by his works and did not see the very point of the law because Jesus was telling him a story not of, hey, here's the example you need to follow to be saved. Jesus was actually telling him a story about himself and what Jesus came to do because High Point Church, the good Samaritan, the Samaritan person, the Samaritan man in the story is not you, it's not me, it's Jesus himself. Jesus was explaining the gospel to this man in the parable, that you can't meet the standard, you're actually the dead man on the side of the road, and I've come to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And he was so self-righteous that he couldn't see it. He still thought in his own works that he could be good enough to obey the law. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm the good Samaritan, you and I the man, the lawyer, and you and I, we are the dead man left on the side of the road. And God looked down on us, his enemies, rebels, running from him, turning from him, stiff-arming him, saying, no, God, will do things our own way. And he looked down on a world who had forsaken him. And what did he have? All the time in the scriptures, Jesus looks out at the crowds and the, the gospel writers say he was moved with compassion. That Jesus looked down on rebels like you and me and had compassion on us. Still being just, not budging the standard, but also being the justifier. How? Through Jesus Christ. That the standard would still remain, but Jesus Christ would come down and he would meet the standard in our place and that he would justify those who've put their faith in him. That Jesus Christ is the good Samaritan. He looked down on us and had compassion. He came to the aid of his enemies. Jesus took the real path of blood so that you and I would not have to. He was willing to become naked so that you and I could be clothed. He took off his robe of righteousness and would put it on us. 
He was willing to put himself at risk so that you and I could be restored. He was willing to be vulnerable so that you and I could be provided for and cared for. He was poured out on the cross so that you and I could be made whole. Scripture says that on the cross, Jesus was pierced and what flowed out of him was blood and water, blood to pay for our sins and water to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. That Jesus would be poured out so that you and I could be made whole. He wrote the blank check with his life and he was willing to pay it all so that you and I could be brought to life again. That's the goodness of the gospel. Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves and he is going to come back one day and finish what he has started. And the point of the parable is for us to see that we cannot meet the standard. We can't. We don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we don't love our neighbor as we ought to. And that the goodness of the gospel is Jesus Christ has done it in our place. He has loved the Father, he's met the standard, and he has loved us by laying down his life for us. And the reason that we love the Samaritan word in our world today, we celebrate it, we praise it, Why? Because humility and sacrifice and generosity and laying down your life is a praiseworthy thing. And it's the very thing that our Savior has done for us. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But instead, he took on the form of the likeness of men. He took on the form of a servant and was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the goodness of the gospel, as he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And church, if you've never believed that, Jesus in John 6 is approached and says, hey, what must we do? What do we do to be doing the works of God? You know what Jesus says? Believe in the one whom he sent. You wanna know the work you must do to be saved? It's to believe in Jesus Christ. That's it. There are no works that can save you. Jesus has finished the work. He's complete the work in your place. And if you believe in him, you will be saved. Turn from your sin, repent of your sin. And as we close... I just want us to imagine for a second, what do you think it was like when the man woke up, right? What do you think it was like when the, the Jewish man who last thing he saw was a mob of people coming up behind him and fists flying and then he sees black and I don't know if it was a week, if it was two weeks, if it was two months later. Imagine what that was like when he wakes up. He wakes up in an inn and he's sore and in pain, right? And he sees an innkeeper in the distance like going and doing tasks and serving other people. And he looks up and tries to lean up and he sees, you know, bandages on himself. And he's wondering, he's like, get over here. Like what, you know, calls the innkeeper over and he goes, hey, what happened to me, right? And imagine his face when the innkeeper starts with, well, a Samaritan brought you in. You know what I mean? And he's going, what? Yeah, like a Samaritan brought you in and he, you know, was essentially naked and had his clothes on you and was bandaging your wounds and you smelled like oil and wine because he had poured out what he was going to use for food onto your wounds to heal you and you were riding on his mule and he was walking and tired and weary and then he paid for you to stay here for the last two months and I've racked up a bunch of other expenses and he better come back because he owes me a lot of money, right? What's our response as the dead man who's been brought to life? It's, oh God, how could I ever repay you? And this is the life we live as believers. Not that we could ever repay God for what he's done, but it's a life of gratitude for what he's done. And what does Jesus say? Now go and do likewise. We go and be like the good Samaritan, not so that God will save us, but because we were the dead man and he's brought us to life. And now God, through his 
infinite wisdom will use us to proclaim the gospel to help bring others to life. That we go and do likewise. We don't separate religion and theology from love and compassion. Paul says that if, if we have the words of angels and do all these wonders, but we don't have love, then we're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We've missed it. If we don't have love, then we're nothing. Jesus says, go and as, as someone who was dead and has been brought to life, go and do likewise. Go and do for others what they cannot do for themselves. Why? Because it's the very thing that our Savior's done for us. So church, let's be a people who do that. Let's be a people who look out on the, the crowds, who look at the people within our own body, and we're moved to compassion for those in need. Why? Not so that God might love us more, but because we were the dead man, and he's brought us back to life. And by his grace, he might use us to bring others to new life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for this parable. God, that you are showing us the gospel in it. God, that we were former enemies. God, in our sin, we were left for dead. And Father, you looked down on us with compassion. And you brought us back to life through your son. And God, now in your grace and in your kindness, you might use us to love others, to show them the love that which you've loved us, God, to point them to the cross, and God, ultimately, to bring new life into the souls of the people around us. So God, may we never get over what you've done. God, when we look at people around us and we don't love them and we don't have compassion on them, it's because we've forgotten that we were the dead man. It's because we start to see ourselves like the lawyer who think that we've earned this thing, that we've, we've been good enough for your love. God, we can never be good enough. God, help us to continue to see ourselves as those that were dead and you've made us alive. God, not to get caught up in our own self-righteousness like the lawyer. God, the more that we remember and behold you and see what you've done for us, God, we will in turn do that for others. But when we forget, God, we will act like the lawyer, we'll think we've earned it, and we'll expect other people to earn it as well, to dig themselves out of their own ditch. So God, help us to behold the gospel, to see what you've done, and to take that love and share it with the world. It's in Christ's name that we pray.